This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Welcome back, everyone. Time to chat about books again. This episode is what I'm calling the house episode because every book that I read has the word house in the title. Now, I didn't initially plan this, it's just that two of the books that I picked to read last week had the word house in the title, so I had to pick a third because I'm compulsive like that. But today I'm going to share my thoughts on House of Cotton by Monica Brashears, A House with Good Bones by T. Kingfisher, and The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Clune. Sitting here sipping on a cup of tea today, the brand is August Uncommon, and the blend is called Metropolitan. It's a blend of black tea with lemon peel, clove, bergamot, and dried plum. Seriously, so good. I also like making this one as an iced tea. I'll make it double strength, and then I do a one-to-one mix with tea and sparkling water with frozen fruit as ice cubes because I'm fancy like that. Basically a genius. You should try it. Thank me later. I've also set the ambiance in my room with some soy wax melts in my wax warmer. I recently discovered this company called Frostbeard Studios. They have all of these bookish candle scents, and they also have, as I mentioned, wax melts. I'm obsessed with several of them, but my fave at the moment is Bookstore. It smells of mahogany, leather, and coffee. So good. And for the record, neither of those are paid ads. I just really like these products. And who knows, maybe they'll pass on some discount codes or something for my listeners. Hint, hint. Now, before we jump into the reviews, let's see what's new on bookshelves this week. First on my list is 100 Places to See After You Die by Ken Jennings. Part of the synopsis reads, Legendary Jeopardy champion and host Ken Jennings brings us a hilarious travel guide to the afterlife, exploring destinations to die for from literature, mythology, and pop culture, ranging from Dante's Inferno to Town to NBC's The Good Place. Next is 1964, Eyes of the Storm by Paul McCartney. Taken with a 35mm camera by Paul McCartney, these largely unseen photographs capture the explosive period from the end of 1963 through early 1964 in which the Beatles became an international sensation and changed the course of music history. Then we have A Right Worthy Woman by Ruth P. Watson, an inspiring novel based on the remarkable true story of Virginia's Black Wall Street and the indomitable Maggie Lena Walker, the daughter of a formerly enslaved woman who became the first black woman to establish and preside over a bank in the United States. Next, we have Borrow My Heart by Casey West. In this young adult romance, a girl overhears a guy getting verbally destroyed by his friends for being catfished, so she jumps in to save the day and pretends to be his online crush. Next is Everyone Wants to Know by Kelly Lloyd Gilbert, a rip from the tabloids young adult drama about a girl's famous for being famous family fracturing from within as their dirty laundry gets exposed. Next we have Going by Coastal by Dahlia Adler, 
a queer sliding doors YA rom-com in which a girl must choose between summer in New York City with her dad and the girl she's always wanted, or LA with her estranged mom and the guy she never saw coming. Then we have Legends and Liars by Morgan Rhodes. This is book two in the Echoes and Empires series. This riveting sequel to Echoes and Empires sees Joss and Jericho team up with some of their greatest enemies, including two of the most powerful mages in the world, to bring an end to the Queen's Empire of Lies. Next is Love Theoretically by Ally Hazelwood. Rival physicists collide in a vortex of academic feuds and fake dating shenanigans in this delightfully steminist rom-com. Next is Night Bloom by Peace Adzomedi, M-E-D-I-E. This moving novel about the unbreakable power of female friendship follows two estranged women in Ghana who reconnect in a crisis. Then we have On Earth As It Is on Television by Emily Jane. First contact stories have never been as intoxicating and fun as an Emily Jane's novel of the sudden arrival and equally sudden departure of spaceships above Earth. Next is Sally Brady's Italian Adventure by Christina Lynch. What if you found yourself in the middle of a war armed only with lipstick and a sense of humor? Abandoned as a child in Los Angeles in 1931, Dust Bowl refugee Sally Brady convinces a Hollywood movie star to adopt her and grows up to be an effervescent gossip columnist secretly satirizing Europe's upper crust. Then we have She Started It by Sean Gilbert, S-I-A-N Gilbert, a hot, twisty summer debut thriller about a group of young women whose Caribbean bachelorette party takes a sinister turn. It's Lord of the Flies meets And Then There Were None, but with Instagram and too much Prosecco. I will have a review of this one next week, actually. Then we have Something Close to Magic by Emma Mills. A baker's apprentice reluctantly embarks on an adventure full of magic, new friendships, and a prince in distress in this deliciously romantic young adult fantasy. Then we have The Drowning Woman by Robin Harding. A deliciously twisted story of friendship, retribution, and betrayal about a homeless woman fleeing a dangerous past and the wealthy society wife she saves from drowning who pulls her into a dark web of secrets and lies. Then we have The Five Star Weekend by Ellen Hildebrand. After tragedy strikes, Hollis Shaw gathers four friends from different stages in her life to spend an unforgettable weekend on Nantucket. Next is The Last Lifeboat by Hazel Gaynor. Inspired by a remarkable true story, a young teacher evacuates children to safety across perilous waters in a moving and triumphant new novel. And then we have The Spectacular by Fiona Davis, a thrilling story about love, sacrifice, and the pursuit of dreams set amidst the glamour and glitz of Radio City Music Hall. And then What She Missed by Liara Tamani. 16-year-old Ebony Jones is devastated when her family moves from Houston to her grandmother's house in the country. There's absolutely nothing for Ebony in Alula Lake, Texas. Or so she thinks. And then we have Wolfpack by Amelia Brunskill. This shocking, suspenseful novel about a group of teenage girls living in a cult shows a terrifying paranoia and suspicion that emerges when one of them goes missing. And last on my list is You Were Always Mine by Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. A moving and provocative novel about a black woman who finds an abandoned white baby, sending her on a collision course with her past, her family, and a birth mother who doesn't want to be found. New to my shelves this week are Cinderella is Dead by Kaylin Bayron, A Dark and Secret Place by Jen Williams, The Next Together by Lauren James, and The Honeys by Ryan LaSala. I also have pre-ordered The Drowning Woman by Robin Harding, and You Were Always Mine by Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. I also joined NetGalley this week, which I initially told myself I wasn't going to do for a couple of reasons. 
The first being the main goal of this podcast was to get through my massive TBR pile. And if you've listened for any amount of time, you know that every week I add more books to my pile than I get through. The second reason was I ran a book blog about 10 years or so ago. Ran it for, I think it went on three or four years. I really enjoyed it, but then eventually I found that it became more of an unpaid job than a hobby. I received so many ARCs, which was great, not complaining about that, but I got to the point where it became overwhelming. I was constantly accepting books from authors to review on the blog. That was my mistake. But since I had accepted them, I felt as though I had to review all of them and it quickly became very stressful. So even though I do have a new NetGalley membership, my plan is to continue chiseling away at the TBR and reviewing no more than one book per week that is an advanced copy. Figure that way I'll still be able to chip away at my pile while getting my hands on some of the newer releases. That said, I received She Started It by Sean Gilbert, Night of the Living Queers, a LGBTQIA horror anthology, Call the Dark by J. Todd Scott, Please Tell Me by Mike Omer, and Lies and Other Languages by Sonali Dev. And then I also added The Last Girl Standing by Jennifer Dugan, Belladonna by Adeline Grace, Together We Will Go by J. Michael Straczynski, and Before I Let Go by Kennedy Wren to my watch list. All right, how about we jump into the reviews? I'll kick things off with House of Cotton by Monica Brashears. This book was first published on April 4th, 2023 by Flatiron Books, and the synopsis reads, 19 years old, broke, and effectively an orphan, Magnolia doesn't have much to look forward to. She feels stuck and haunted by her overdrawn bank account, by her predatory landlord, by the ghost of her late grandmother, Mama Brown. One night while working at her dead-end gas station job, a mysterious slick stranger named Cotton walks in and offers to turn Magnolia's luck around. He offers her a lucrative modeling job at his family's funeral home. Magnolia accepts. But despite things looking up, Magnolia's problems fatten along with her wallet. When Cotton's requests become increasingly weird, Magnolia discovers there's a lot more at stake than just her rent. Sharp as a belted knife, this sly social commentary cuts straight to the bone, revealing the aftermath of the American plantation and what it means to be poor, black, and a woman in the God-fearing South. I don't know what it was about this book, but it sunk its hooks into me and did not let go until the very end. I really enjoyed it. I remember reading the synopsis one week while putting together my list of new releases, and all it took was the mention of a mysterious stranger offering Magnolia a modeling job at his family's funeral home, and I was fully on board. I wasn't sure what I was expecting when I picked it up, but what I got was creepy and a whole hell of a lot of fun. When the book begins, 19-year-old Magnolia Brown is attending her grandmother, Mama Brown's, funeral. Mama Brown was Magnolia's only sense of stability and had been for most of her life. Magnolia's mother was a drug addict and could not take care of her, so Mama Brown, Magnolia's paternal grandmother, stepped into the role. With Mama Brown gone, Magnolia is alone, she's broke, possibly pregnant, and at the mercy of Sugarfoot, Mama Brown's landlord. It doesn't take us long to figure out that Sugarfoot is no good and is happy to help Magnolia with the rent in exchange for unwanted sexual favors. Magnolia numbs her pain by hooking up with strangers she meets on Tinder. She poses as someone named Carolina Nettles. These hookups relieve the pain and scratch an itch, but while they make her feel like she's in control, it's only for a moment. 
Magnolia works the late shift at a local gas station. It barely pays enough to survive, but at the moment, it's all she has. This and her late night run-ins with a mute homeless man she calls Cigarette Sammy. Every night, Sammy comes digging through the trash, and Magnolia hooks him up with a bag of food and a moon pie, and a few words of encouragement. At the top of the book, Magnolia's chief concern is figuring out how to obtain a pregnancy test. She has less than $20 to her name for the next two weeks. But then, a handsome stranger by the name of Cotton walks into the gas station one night with blood-covered hands. After washing up in the restroom, he tells Magnolia he thinks she's beautiful and asks her if she'd consider modeling for him. He gives her a business card and is on his way. Magnolia, at the time, has no intention of meeting this dude. But after falling prey to Sugarfoot once again and being down to next to nothing in her bank account, she decides she may as well go see what it's all about. It doesn't take long before Magnolia has moved into the funeral home with Cotton and his alcoholic aunt, Eden. She's agreed to pose as a recently deceased individual to help families through their grieving process. Now, at first, the cases are all done over the internet, but as business booms, Cotton seeks to branch out, pushing Magnolia's comfort level. All the characters in this book are a little messed up, and I loved it. I adored Magnolia. I really felt for her. She really struggles with finding a place in the world. She's a biracial woman, she's half black, half white, who basically has her identity stripped away to become these dead white girls, never a person of color. What was especially haunting was anytime Magnolia grows uncomfortable, she retreats into this little pocket of her mind and turns herself into an inanimate object from a fairy tale. One point, she was the bean that turned into the beanstalk that Jack climbed. Another time, she was a loaf of bread in Red Riding Hood's basket. She was also the straw that was spun into gold by Rumpelstiltskin. Mama Brown appears in the most random of places throughout the book, trying to lift Magnolia up, even in death. And every time she appears, she's decayed even further. Even in death, Mama Brown is still haunted by some of her life decisions, and Magnolia wonders if the same will happen to her when she dies. The other major players in the story, though financially better off, still don't have their shit together any more than Magnolia. Cotton can't seem to think clearly without a piece of twine. He also carries a dark secret with him from his childhood. And his Aunt Eden is an alcoholic. She too has her own identity issues. She's a very skilled makeup artist, and every day she paints her face to look like a different celebrity. Sometimes she's Meryl Streep, sometimes Dolly Parton, Michelle Pfeiffer, Julianne Moore, or a host of other starlets. This book is captivating, creepy, and at times poignant, while focusing on themes of identity and grief. I really, really enjoyed this one. In fact, I read it in a day. If you're a fan of Southern Gothic, this is one book you shouldn't skip. I gave it four out of five stars on Goodreads. Okay, it's time for a break. I'll be right back. Next, I'll share my thoughts on T. Kingfisher's A House with Good Bones. This book was first published by Tor on March 28, 2023. The synopsis reads, Mom seems off. Her brother's words echo in Sam Montgomery's ear as she turns onto the quiet North Carolina street where their mother lives alone. She brushes the thought away as she climbs the front steps. Sam's excited for this rare extended visit and looking forward to nights with just the two of them, drinking boxed wine, watching murder mystery shows, and guessing who the killer is long before the characters figure it out. But stepping inside, she quickly realizes home isn't what it used to be. Gone is the warm, cluttered charm her mom is known for. Now the walls are painted a sterile white. 
Her mom jumps at the smallest noises and looks over her shoulder even when she's the only person in the room. And when Sam steps out back to clear her head, she finds a jar of teeth hidden behind the magazine-worthy rose bushes, and vultures are circling the garden from above. To find out what's got her mom so frightened in her own home, Sam will go digging for the truth, but some secrets are better left buried. This book was not at all what I was expecting. For some reason, the synopsis made me think of the movie The Dark and the Wicked, which, if you are a horror fan and haven't seen that movie, I insist you watch it as soon as possible. It's so creepy. I loved it. This book definitely had its creepy moments, but I wasn't expecting it to be as funny as it was. The story is told from the first-person point of view of Sam Montgomery, an archaeological entomologist, so she's a bug person, who was working on a dig, but the dig got shut down because they found human remains at the dig site. The dig can't resume until the site has been thoroughly inspected and cleared, so Sam has some time on her hands. Her brother recently visited their mother, and he had told Sam that their mom seemed really off. It had been a while since Sam was last home, so she decides to go spend a few weeks with her mom while she waits for the site to open back up. She throws some things in her car and drives across the United States from Arizona to North Carolina. Sam's mom lives in Sam's grandmother's, aka her grandmay, her old house. The house sits in a cookie-cutter suburb and was built in the 80s, so it's not ancient by any means. The moment Sam gets home, she notices a few odd things. First, there's a vulture sitting on the fence. But then Sam remembers that a woman up the street runs an animal rehab out of her home, and she's rehabbed vultures in the past, so she just assumes it belongs to her. When Sam steps inside the house, she notices the walls are all painted a dull ecru color. Definitely not her mom's speed. And there's an old painting of a woman and a Confederate soldier hanging on the wall. Definitely more the speed of her racist dead grandmother than it is of her free-spirited mother. Other things Sam finds odd are her mother's need to pray before meals, and her refusing to say anything bad about her dead mother. Sam finds the latter especially odd because her mother and Sam's grandmay had a volatile relationship. Sam's father died when Sam was young, and to make ends meet, her mother moved herself, Sam, and Sam's brother in with grandmay. Sam's mother worked two jobs hoping to get herself back on her feet so that she and the kids could get a place of their own, and since she worked a lot, Sam and her brother were left in the care of grandmay. And Grandma wasn't exactly the easiest person to get along with. In fact, many would call her downright abusive. Sam knows that her mom had pretty much the same experience growing up as Sam had when she was a kid. So why is she afraid to say anything bad about her? And Sam begins to rationalize. Maybe it's just delayed grief. Or could it be dementia? These are all possibilities, but then Sam experiences weird things, like waking up to a swarm of ladybugs in her bedroom one night. And on a couple of different occasions, she hears someone whispering in her ear while she sleeps and stroking her head. Sure, it could be a very realistic nightmare, it could be sleep paralysis, but when Sam finds a jar of buried teeth in the yard, and then notices what appears to be a ghostly hand reaching out from beneath a rosebush when looking at an old graduation photo, she wonders if maybe there's something wrong with the house. Now Sam's more of a believer in science, but could Grandmay be haunting the place? Are the stories of Sam's great-grandfather being some sort of evil occultist true? Sam struggles with this because she doesn't believe in witches or ghosts or anything paranormal, but she needs to find out what's going on and quick because the vultures are multiplying, and everyone knows vultures are attracted to the dead and the dying. Now, as I said before, this was a fun read. I really enjoyed the character. Sam was freaking hilarious. Very no-nonsense. 
I really liked the relationship between her and her mother. This is a fast read, and while I enjoyed it, it didn't really blow me away. I think a lot of that was because, as I mentioned earlier, I went into this one expecting to be unsettled from the get-go. The heat and intensity didn't really ramp up to a level of creepiness that made me squirm until roughly 17 chapters in. From that point, it really took off, but it was well past the halfway mark of the book. It's a short one, clocks in around 250 pages, so I got through it quickly. It just wasn't as creepy as I'd hoped. All in all, it was a fun read, not the super creepy, keep-me-up-at-night book I was hoping for, but it was enjoyable. Now don't get me wrong, I love me a good horror comedy. I think had I known this author's writing style before I went in, I would have known to expect more comedy than straight horror, and I would have been prepared for that. I'm definitely going to check out more of this author's work because I did really enjoy her voice. In the end, I gave this one 3 out of 5 stars. Alright, we'll close out with T.J. Clune's The House in the Cerulean Sea. This book was first published on March 16, 2020 by Tor Books and was a Goodreads Choice nominee for Best Fantasy that same year. The synopsis reads, Linus Baker is a by-the-book caseworker in the department in charge of magical youth. He's tasked with determining whether six dangerous magical children are likely to bring about the end of the world. Arthur Parnassus is the master of the orphanage. He would do anything to keep the children safe, even if it means the world will burn and his secrets will come to light. The House in the Cerulean Sea is an enchanting love story masterfully told about the profound experience of discovering an unlikely family in an unexpected place and realizing that family is yours. Y'all talk about an unexpectedly sweet read. I love when a book surprises me, and this one did exactly that. It was like Roald Dahl for adults, and Lord knows I love me some Roald Dahl when I was a kid. The book focuses on Linus Baker, a 40-year-old man who isn't particularly happy. He has high blood pressure, he could stand to lose some weight, and hopes to achieve this by eating really sad-sounding salads. <laughs> he lives alone with his cat next door to an old woman who is constantly nagging him in a city that is described as dark and endlessly rainy. The only joy that Linus finds is in his old records from the 1950s that he listens to each night after dinner. Linus works for the department in charge of magical youth, and the goal of this department is to ensure that magical children are properly cared for in the orphanages in which they live. Linus isn't particularly happy with his job, but he's good at it, and he's very good at following the rules and doing everything by the book without asking any questions so as just to fly under the radar. Much to Linus' surprise, he is called forth by extremely upper management and told that he is to spend a month on an island where six children live in an orphanage. These six children are allegedly some of the most dangerous magical kids, one of which is the son of Satan himself and could bring about the destruction of the world. Linus is told that he is to send back thorough reports to extremely upper management about how the children are treated, how they behave, and how the proprietor of the orphanage behaves and treats the children. When Arthur arrives on the island, the beauty of the place strikes him. It sits just off the coast, surrounded by a beautiful blue ocean. He first meets two of the children. There's Talia, a female gnome with a beard, and Theodore, a wyvern. Later, he'll meet a forest sprite named Fee, Sal, a large young man who turns into a Pomeranian when he's scared. Chauncey, who is some sort of unknown sea blob who wants nothing more than to grow up and become a bellhop. And Lucy, short for Lucifer, the adventurous six-year-old boy with a wild imagination who could allegedly destroy the entire world. Taking care of the children is a man named Arthur Parnassus. 
He is tall, gentle, and firm, but very loving toward the children. And we have Zoe, the forest sprite who lives in a cottage on the island. Arthur seems to have taken to Linus quickly, but Linus doesn't trust his motives and wonders if he's doing it to throw him off. But as Linus spends more time with Arthur, and Zoe, and the kids, he wonders why this particular orphanage is under scrutiny. It seems these children are much better off and under better care than many of the children he's checked in on over the years, so why is extremely upper management focused on this place? Now, I won't give away any specifics because this is definitely a book that needs to be read, but I will say in the end, Linus learns an awful lot about himself. He learns that a family is sometimes chosen and not always one you are born into. He also learns that he is lovable and worthy of being loved, and above all else, he learns that he and his opinions matter. This magical little story provides a glimmer of hope in a time when drag queens and transgender individuals, well, let's face it, the entire LGBTQIA community, are being targeted for being different by ruthless politicians who rely on fear-mongering to ramp up their base. There's a lot of that in this book, and this is a pleasant reminder that just because someone is different from you doesn't necessarily make them bad or dangerous. There were so many passages in this book that touched me and made me want to send a copy of this book to several bigots that I know. The problem is they probably wouldn't read it. Even if they did, the message would go completely over their head. They'd likely just burn the book because, you know, that's still a thing. For those of you with open minds and open hearts, I would highly recommend this one. It's a sweet, magical tale about love and found family. I gave it a 5 out of 5 stars on Goodreads. That does it for this week's reviews. Next week, I'm planning to cover four books. I'm way ahead on my reading and recording of these episodes, so I feel like I'm in a good place where I can start doing four reviews per episode, or at least for a while. But before I go, I would like to invite you to follow the show on Instagram. I'm slowly integrating into the whole bookstagram crowd, and you can find all sorts of bookish stuff that doesn't make the show over on Instagram. So check me out over there. The handle is justreaditalreadypod. Or you can find a link to Instagram from the website at justreaditalready.com. Love to have you over there. Now be sure to join me next week when I share my thoughts on Sean Gilbert's She Started It, Genevieve Wheeler's Adelaide, Kane Minato's Confessions, and Natalie D. Richards' Four Found Dead. See you then. Have a great week. Have a great week.